We talked about the importance of that and it could attest to its faithfulness so that if it was a deed or if it was a will or something like that, it was being left behind. Revelation 6, 1, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals of the scroll. And then the most famous, famous part of Revelation begins to come forth. And that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if there's any part of the book of the Revelation that people are familiar with, they're familiar with the four horsemen. Matter of fact, Billy Graham wrote a book called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And others have, or The Four Horsemen of Revelation, I believe was the title of his book. And others have written a book about it. You've probably seen, and if you'll Google, you'll see uh, of what I think is probably the most faithful depiction of who these were by an artist. It's a woodcut by Albert Dewar, Albrecht, A-L-B-R-E-C-H-T, D-U-H-E-R. His woodcuts of the artwork of these four horsemen, it captures, I think, dramatically and powerfully. If you go to Venice, you'll see the four horsemen atop of the church there. I remember the first time when Becky and I, the first visit we ever made to Venice, uh, we were looking at those four horsemen up there and symbolic of what they meant and understood. Some people want to say those come from uh, uh, mythology, but uh, I asked there in the church, and no, they felt like they were there representing the four horsemen of the apocalypse as well. When you look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you're looking at a symbol of the four chief components of our history upon this planet. And as I go through this tonight, <clears throat> What you're seeing is the story of the history of our world being talked to in symbolism. I asked the angel, Zechariah chapter 1, 9 through 10, I asked the angel who was talking to me, my Lord, what do these horses mean? I will show you, the angel replied. And the rider standing among the myrtle trees and explained, they're the ones the Lord has sent out to patrol the earth. And if you go look at this, this chapter, and I believe also in the book of Daniel, you'll also notice the four horsemen are talked about. Well, the four horsemen are a way of looking at our history because as we look at each of these seals, you'll see four components of history. And it may startle you a little bit to see war, to see famine as being components of history and being servants of God. But one of the things you have to remember, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world in rebellion against God. We live in a world where man chose to sin against God. And I'll show you why that statement is so important to understanding Revelation and in particular, this particular chapter. Also, these seven, uh, these seven woes or these seven seals that we're going to look at tonight, these seven seals encompass all seven of the woes that Jesus talked about in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, what we call the synoptic gospels. All seven of these seals Jesus speaks about and the three Gospels as he talks about the woes that are coming upon this planet. Well, the first one, the white horse, represents conquest. Some people have tried to say this represents Jesus, but if you'll notice, this horseman only has one crown. And later in the book of Revelation, we'll see that Christ is crowned with many crowns. Can you say amen to that? Does that remind you of a hymn that we used to sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne? Well, Christ is, is pictured not only as, as crowned with many crowns, but Christ is pictured in a totally different way than this horse. I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head and he rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Of course, we know that Christ won the victory and won the battle. The bow is an image of conquest. And the white horses is an image of conquest. If there was anything the Romans feared, if there was any group of people the Romans feared, it was the Parthenians. You don't see this a lot when people write about Roman history, 
But Rome always feared the advance from the east. The only people who had ever really, uh, before the, the hordes of the, of the Vandals and the barbarians came from the north as Rome became more opulent and began to hire out more of its armies to mercenaries rather than citizens fighting its war, they feared the Parthenians. The Parthenians came from Persia. The Parthenians were known for their archery skills. The Parthenians were known for their warfare skills, and they were also known for their white horses. Prior to the Parthenians, most people had fought out of chariots. This was the most feared weapon was the chariot riders. And you'll read through the Old Testament about the chariots and even how that King David or the kings of David, or the kings of Israel, were forbidden to, that they were forbidden to have a lot of chariots because their trust was supposed to be depending upon the Lord. Well, the Parthenians perfected, now get this, think of the best cowboy movie you've ever seen where a cowboy is riding and shooting behind himself. The Parthenians perfected the art of riding the horses and shooting their crossbows, shooting their bows backwards with accuracy. And twice, two different times, Roman legions were utterly decimated and obliterated by the Parthenians on the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire because in pursuing the Parthenians when the Parthenians had came in and attacked and conquered land, part of their strategy was to retreat and as they retreated and went up a hill, these masterful archers turned around while they're riding and they fire their arrows and they just utterly decimate and obliterate these two different, at two different times, two different Roman uh, legions. Now, the Romans were not the smartest people in the world, but they learned in a hurry. And there came a saying that you don't chase a Parthenian up a hill. That became a part of Roman lore because of what they'd done to them. The other thing I'd like you to take from this tonight is it also puts to lie the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. For the Romans had declared that they had secured all of their borders and there would be peace, and it was a peace that you hear us talk about sometimes at Christmas time of the Pax Romana and what Rome was trying to establish and Christ was born the Prince of Peace. Augustus had already proclaimed that there was total peace around the perimeter of the empire, but it was the Parthenians that caused him so much problems. You'll see in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, God says, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, he's going to break their military power. Jeremiah 51, 56, the destroyers come upon Babylon. Her warriors are taken. Their bows are broken in pieces for the Lord is a God of recompense. He will surely repay. So the bow you see in this first writer's hand, it's not the bow of the rainbow that encircled the throne. Remember we talked about in the vision of the throne room, we see a half a rainbow, but in heaven we'll see a full rainbow encircling the throne. This bow is actually a military. So it's imperial conquest that's being talked about here. The second, the red horse represents bloodshed. Represents bloodshed. And it's highly, highly likely, and I say highly likely here, I, I personally uh, have come to the firm conclusion that what you're looking at here is civil war. You're not looking at conquest as much now as you're looking at civil war because the war, the sword, the Greek word for the sword that he's carrying, this mighty sword, is the short sword that the Roman soldier carried when he had to fight close at hand. Civil war is the worst war of all. 
Civil War cost us more casualties in the United States than World War I and World War II put together. It cost America more casualties. Civil War destroys not only your government and your land and your properties. When Sherman came through Georgia, what made Sherman such a menace to the South, and especially in Georgia, was Sherman had a scorched earth policy. He took and ate every chicken, every cow, every hog, burned every grain field all the way from Chattanooga to Savannah, and a 50-mile wide path of destruction, and therefore crippled and brought the South to its knees during the war, because that part of the country was the breadbasket, so to speak. This bloodshed, or this red horse, his whole job is to remove peace from the earth. Then another horse appeared, Revelation 6, 4. Another horse appeared, a red one, and its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. Underline that in your outline. The authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. I remember when I was in Paraguay right after the Civil War. In Paraguay. As a matter of fact, I was headed for Paraguay and got the call that they were right in the middle of a war. I called friends of mine down there, and while we were on the phone, this is way before the days of uh, cell phones, I could hear the bombs and the explosion and the shootings as we were talking about. I landed in Paraguay and, and Asuncion, and you could just see, you know, bodies there. You could see the shelled-out buildings and the gunshot. I landed in Athens, Greece the next day after a terrorist had set off a bomb there in Athens. I was in Ethiopia seeing the firsthand results of civil war and famine and starvation that took place. It's very difficult for us with over a hundred years past our civil war history to understand how devastating that a civil war is. It's very difficult for us to understand how many children are affected by a civil war, not just the people that die in battle. And so when you see this phrase of bloodshed, this is a time of tremendous suffering. And in a lot of these wars, in places that I have been personally, and there are many more places I've not been, in a lot of these places, Christians have become refugees because of the war. Not because of their sin, but they have become refugees. If America was to suffer a devastating nuclear attack, if America was to suffer a devastating attack upon our country or a blight or a disease or something of that nature, the church would be just as much affected as the rest of the country would because we're part of the culture, but we would not be suffering because of our sin. But what you see here in this passage is the suffering that has taken place unnecessarily so because God never meant for there to be war and bloodshed upon this planet. God created this place to be a home for you and I to fellowship with him. I'll show you that in just a few minutes in the symbolism and then you can understand the message even better and, and understand why this is such good news. What we're being warned against here is oppression. And the church would have understood this because in AD 68 and 69, and the book of Revelation would have been written not too much longer after that because of civil war and murder and assassinations, Rome actually had four emperors. And if I remember their names, there were Galbo, Othello, Otho, uh, Vitellius, and then finally Vespian. Four emperors in one year that served there in that nation. And so they were very familiar what was happening because what happened in Rome affected Jerusalem as well. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 6, we're told what's holding back this kind of lawlessness. And you know what is holding him back. 
For he can be revealed only when his time comes, for the lawlessness is already at work secretly. It will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. I believe that's the church. That the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his coming, destroy him by the splendor of his coming. The man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. This is one of the reasons why I believe that the appearance of the Antichrist will be after the rapture of the church. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived. Underline that in your outline. God will cause them to be greatly deceived. Why? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth. Say that with me. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth. Please say it again. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth. Sin has its own judgment. And when we refuse to love and accept the truth, of who our great and wonderful Heavenly Father is, what He has done for us in Christ, and what the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord means because we don't want to live for God, because we refuse to accept that, then God will cause or allow a great deception, and they will believe these lies. There are many, many people in our nation today and around the world who believe that God is a liar and that the lies of this world are true. This week, there's a popular teenage magazine that has glorified Karl Marx. Doesn't mention all of the suffering and the murders that have been named because of Karl Marx. We are fighting the battle of our lifetimes right now in our generation for our children. Then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 13 speaks of this time. We'll look at this next week. On that day, they will be terrified, stricken by the Lord, will great panic, and they will fight their neighbors hand to hand. This is that civil war that I'm talking to you about. The third, the black horse represents scarcity and famine. And if I'm going too fast, just see me after the service, and I'll try to catch you up, but there's a lot of ground to cover here tonight. Scarcity and famine. When the Lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come, and I looked up, and I saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and the wine. Drewer's woodcutting here, <clears throat> when he shows the four horsemen, there's a robust man riding with his right hand holding back the scales that are waving in the wind behind him. Now, you can find some more of these paintings done by some of the more romantic artists from the Romantic period, and Becky and I have seen those in museums, and I've taken pictures of them, even gotten in trouble for getting too close to take pictures of them when I set off the alarms more than once. Becky refuses to walk through the museums with me anymore, but I've got some great pictures from my visits. And, uh, but anyway, they romanticize them, but Drew captures this again. The, the scales are the way, and when you see the scales, it's about the weighing of the food and the grain. Look at what he says. A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley. A loaf of wheat bread typically took a quart of wheat. And a quart of wheat would feed a day worker for himself for one day, but it would not feed his family. For the same amount of money, you could get three quarts of barley, but barley was much lower in nutritional value. Barley was the food of the very, very poor people. If you remember reading the story of Gideon, you remember how that the Midianites said they saw uh, some barley come tumbling in and destroy the camp. 
Well, Gideon knew that was symbolic of who they were. He was the least of the least of his father's tribe, who was the least of all the tribes of Israel. And by that, he understood by what the, 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 the Lord had given this Midianite the dream when he was scared and telling his fellow Midianites about it, they were going to win the battle. Barley was the sign of the poorest of the poor. And so what you're seeing here, you're seeing inflation according to Cicero of about 15 times. So, I don't buy the groceries at my house, but a loaf of bread, is it $2? Is that about the cost of a loaf of bread? Some of you nodding your head, some of you going, I don't know, I don't shop either, you know, but, you know, let's say, two times 15 is what? Thank you. I knew, I was afraid somebody, y'all were going to sit there and look at me for a moment and go, okay, we've got another problem. $30. Imagine $30 for a loaf of bread. What you're talking about here is hyperinflation. There have been those times in America before. There have been those times in Germany right after World War I with the severe penalties that were laid upon Germany's, which is what gave Hitler his rise to power and led us into World War II. But it's interesting to me, I want you to look at this, don't waste the olive oil and the wine. In other words, don't touch the olive oil and the wine. There are two ways of looking at this. Number one, it seems like the uber-rich always seem to escape. And so some people read into this a socioeconomic message. That is not what I read into this at all. This time, by the time we finish with this chapter, and remember I told you, this is a frightening portion to be going through. Even the uber-rich, the powerful, the generals, the kings, the princes, they're going to be terrified. So this is not the uber-rich not being affected. But what would happen was when conquerors would come through, they would destroy the grain crops because if you came through and conquered the land, it was like Sherman. When you conquered the, uh, the, 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 and you burned the crops, people only lost a year's harvest. They would suffer, some would die. But if you cut down the olive trees, it would take 17 years for those olive trees to go back before they would begin to reproduce or harvest again. The same thing with the vineyards. It would take years and years for the vineyards to grow back. So what you're seeing here is the mercy of God being manifested and being exhibited. And by the way, let me tell you something. The olive tree is one of the most famous and beloved trees in my mind. They're not the prettiest trees. But I sat, when I was studying in Israel, I sat underneath olive trees that had sprang from the stumps of the olive trees that the Turks had mown down in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those were the shoots from the same trunks that Jesus would have prayed under from the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so when I see this, I see the mercy of God being shown here. Wine was very important to people because wine was the way they they purified their water. A lot of times water set for a long time or you wasn't sure whether you'd get a pure source. You know that Jerusalem did not have its own natural water source. That's the reason Hezekiah's tunnel. You'll see it in most Bibles that have a picture in it. You'll see Hezekiah's tunnel. Hezekiah built this tunnel to bring water from outside the city into the city. Uh, If you've been to Jerusalem, you've probably had the experience of walking down through Hezekiah's tunnel. But Jerusalem had no natural source of water, so water would sit sometimes, and you would put wine in it to to purify the water. You could still get drunk on it. You'd have to drink a lot of water down wine, but you could still get drunk on it. But oil was also something that people used to, to cook with. 
But look at Leviticus 26, 26 with me tonight. Because God had told the people, the children of Israel, if they disobeyed his word, if they dishonored his word, if they failed to take heed to it, God told them about all the curses. You've read about the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy. But in particular, look at Leviticus 26, 26. I will destroy your food supply so that 10 women will need only one oven to bake bread for their families. They will ration your food by weight, and though you have food to eat, you will not be satisfied. Friends, it's very important that you understand the unseen hand of God is at work in this world. And it's very important that you understand, and I don't say this to be frightening, because you have no need to be frightened if you're following living for Christ. But if you're not living for Christ, let me just put it this way. It's your insanity not to live for Christ when you know the truth. Okay? And I'm not gunning for an amen there. I just want you to listen to the truth of that. When you know the truth, it is sheer insanity not to live for Christ. But there are principalities and power at work in this world today, but they are under the control of God. Notice who breaks the seal and calls them forth. They come at his command. Amen? Martin Luther said, the devil is the Lord's devil. And then the pale green horse represents death. The word chloros, the reason I wanted to bring that out to you tonight is because the word chloros is also used to refer to corpses because corpses have this way of turning pale and turning green. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being saying, come, and I looked up and I saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave, or Hades. Its companion was Death, and his, excuse me, his rider's name was Death. And riding along with it, and Dura again captures this in his wood cuttings, is an emaciated old man with this gleeful look on his face riding this horse next to three warriors and then that companion of death and these two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth circle that phrase one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals one-fourth of the world today would represent one billion seven hundred and eighty-two thousand people. That's a lot of people. Put that number up there for me, please. That's a lot of people. That's one-fourth of the people living in our world today. That's what's coming upon this planet. Now, occasionally, people who scoff at Revelation will say to me, come on, you can't really believe that. Friends, we are one step away from a pandemic that could sweep around our world because of the ease of international travel and because of open borders in Europe and Africa and Asia and the United States. We're one step away from a pandemic that could sweep around our planet because of an aerosol bomb or anything else or something released into our water. What about wild animals, some people would say to me. You know, I don't go to sleep fearing wolves at night and things like that like they used to do before many of them were driven back in civilized places. There were places where you had to, times in history where you had to fear wolves. You had to fear mountain lions. In case we read about the story of a grizzly bear attacking somebody in a park or a lion attacking somebody riding on a trail in California. But let me remind you of something. Our city, our community, you know, rats cover our world. And the worst plague that the world has ever known was called the bubonic plague. And it was caused by fleas on what? 
So don't look at this and go, oh, this could never happen. Only foolish people would say this could never happen. Famine, when you've been, well, like I've been, where we buried a hundred, look at me in the eye, and don't ever forget what I'm telling you, where we buried 100 children a day because there wasn't enough food to feed them. Those are the kinds of things that have marked my life and marked my two oldest boys' life and marked my wife's life because we were there. These are the kinds of things that is just sheer insanity to rebel against a God whose will will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. And when you read Revelation, you got to read it through the eyes of the cross. And why the cross? There are real powers at work in this world. But the ultimate purpose of why God allows these things and the purpose of these symbols, that we won't go through next week, but you'll see it, is the refining of the faith of the faithful, of those who love the Lord, and for punishment upon those who don't love the Lord and who don't believe in God. What you're seeing right here is what Daniel prophesied, that the suffering of the cross is transformed into Christ's triumph. What you're seeing, that what happened at the cross, there's more to the story than the resurrection and the day of Pentecost and your salvation and my salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's more to the story. One day, this thing is going to wrap up and God is going to purge this world of evil and sin and death and hell and all of those that have followed the devil will be cast into the lake of fire forever. I don't rejoice over what's going to happen like that. Tertullian, who I studied and wrote a paper on while I was studying for the ministry, Tertullian said that he wished that he could see it, that he would laugh as their flesh melted and purified in the lake of fire. And although I loved and respected Tertullian and his writing, I could never buy into that because there's something about the prayer of Jesus and there's something about the prayer of Stephen that I brought out to you earlier that stands in contradistinction to that. Friends, we weep and we grieve over those who are bound for Christless eternity because of the deception of sin. So what I want you to see is that God is the maker, but these four horsemen representing death and famine and war and disease, death is the unmaker. And just in case you think unmake is not a word, it is a word. It means to destroy by death, to, to begin to, to rot or to decay. Death is the destroyer. Now, here's what I want you to understand before I go through the next three seals, because the next three seals are consequence of the first four horsemen. Remember, a seal was broken, each horseman came up. And let me catch my breath for just a second. It's been a long day. I wish you had some. But I won't share. I'll give you what's left. The vision, this is a vision. God has opened up heaven, brought John in it. And so it's better to think about and to pray about this vision rather than trying to analyze it. So what I'm trying to do tonight is to give you the symbolism so that you can read it prayerfully on your knees and you can just get before the Lord by your bedside or in the altar tonight, you know, when we pray. And you can begin to just get the picture, like you would get the picture of a movie in your head, your favorite movie. If it was Becky's favorite movie, it'd be Gone with the Wind. We used to have to watch that once a year. And although I'm a true blue southerner, I hated that movie. 
Your, your favorite movie may be Superman or Star Wars or whatever. You just think about whatever move, what scene that moves you. And you just kind of like somebody said to me one time, says, you know, you just got to experience it to understand it. It's kind of like some people say about their salvation that really don't know how to explain it. And, and that's okay. There's some things better felt than felt. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So the vision, it's a vision. So if you really want, the reason I'm giving you these is so that you can think about them and pray about them. The next thing I want you to see is that all of this is happening from the context of the first advent, which is Christmas, to the second advent or the second coming of our Lord. This is a span of time. Although this is a, the four components of all of our history, what you're seeing in Revelation is what's happened since the Lamb was slain. We looked at that last week pretty importantly. Are you tracking with me right there? So you're seeing what's happening. Now the next three seals that we're going to look at, the next one is a little different than all the other seven. And by the way, we won't get to the seventh one tonight because it comes in another chapter. What you're going to see now is the cry of the martyrs. This is the Bible's interpretation of what a martyr's death means. This is the Bible's interpretation of what a martyr's death means. So far, the Bible, even in the book of Acts, has not given us the, the interpretation. It's just given us the testimony. Now we're beginning to see something that makes Acts chapter 7 really begin to resonate. It makes the martyrdom of the apostles begin to resonate. And remember, there's been a martyr. Remember in the churches we read about, there's already been martyrs in the church that's taking place. And so what you see here, is, if you look at verse 9 through 11 with me, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. Underline that phrase, martyred for the word of God, and faithful for their testimony, or faithful lend their testimony. They shouted to the Lord, and they said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Now, he stands in contradistinction to everything you've just read about those four horsemen. He's holy, and he's true. He's totally separate from this unbelieving world. By the way, you and I are in this world, but two weeks ago I preached on this Sunday morning. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We are separate from this world. Okay? And we're not talking about the trees and the planet and the rivers and stuff. We're talking about the world system, the unbelieving world. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. God is holy and true. His church is to be holy and true. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. What gives? This doesn't sound like Jesus. This doesn't sound like Stephen. Just hang in there. Don't get uptight. It's going to make sense in just a minute. Then a white robe was given to each of them. And they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. I'm going to tell you something that I hate it when somebody tells me. I hate it when the doctor looks at me and he says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. <clears throat> Don't you hate that? You ever been told that? It's going to get worse 
before it gets better. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There are people tonight, they're being slaughtered for the word of God and for their testimony. Not only that, there are things that I I can't say and missionaries that I'm in contact with because of, of what I do. We can't even identify where they're at and what they're doing. I shared with you last week how we had a young man from Michigan, a young pastor, planting a church in Libya that was murdered. I shared with you about J.W. Tucker, missionary from Georgia, that was murdered and his body thrown to the crocodiles. We have people today literally giving their lives in order to plant the church. That's why it makes me sometimes so aggravated and agitated with petty Christians complaining about the petty things that bother us here in America. You know, I think the, if we work for the Lord and serve the Lord diligently, we don't have time for pettiness. And if we work for the Lord and serve the Lord diligently and reach out to love lost people, we don't have time for not getting along with each other. We need each other then praying for and bearing us up. Do you get what I'm saying? It's the reason why that you have to be careful about how you help people because you can create a toxic environment for them because of their idleness. And so what you have here are people that have been busy for the Lord. They have been faithful to the Word of, faithful to the word of God. That's, that's, that means, if you'll pardon my, my brassiness with this, that means they haven't just talked about it. They haven't just worn a nice jewel cross around their neck. That means they haven't just carried their Bible to church. That means they have lived this book in such a way that people have seen the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That means their language, their lifestyle, their choices, they have lived in such a way that people know they are Christians. Christians. They called them Christians in Antioch because they followed Christ. They know that. They've been faithful to their testimony. They've had an opportunity. To be faithful to your testimony says that you had an opportunity to compromise like the church at Laodicea did. You had an opportunity to compromise and not be faithful to the gospel. And by compromising, you are not faithful to your testimony. But by being faithful to your testimony, it has cost you your life. The altar is the symbol of sacrifice. And remember last week we talked about the throne room and how that the tabernacle and the temple were an actual picture of what was taking place in heaven. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. The temple was the house of God. The temple was not God's original plan. The tabernacle was not God's original plan. But the temple in the Old Testament became the way to God. The temple represented that where the, the Holy of Holies was separated by the blue curtains with the gold thread and that little square room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That was the way to God. And the way to God was through the sacrifices upon the altar and through the, the labor. It was this world, this earth that we live upon where God wanted to enjoy fellowship with us. The hymn that we sing, This is My Father's World, it's a pen to, the, to what a creation was intended to be and what God will ultimately do in the end. When God created the world, the, 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 the earth as we know it, when God created it, He created it as a three-story home. Sky or the heavens, the earth, and the seas. 
There will come a time where God will restore all of that. But the temple, when you read about the temple and the palm trees and you read about the, the, the columns and everything, they reflect to you the seven creation paragraphs from Genesis chapter 1, including the day of rest because the Sabbath was a day of rest. And what you're seeing here is the altar, I think, is the merger of two altars because the altar of incense came to be known as where the prayers of God's people were made from. But you also have the burnt offering, or where, the altar, where the offering was placed upon the, 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 the high altar, and it was burned, and the blood was poured at the base of the altar. So let's look at some verses here. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help, and He heard me from His... Say it again. That pick that place at the temple of the tabernacle was to be a picture of, but the earth was created to be like. My cry to him reached his ears. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 7, the priest will put some of the blood on the horns of the altar for fragrant incense that stands in the Lord's presence inside the tabernacle, and he will pour out the rest of the bull's blood at the base of the altar for burnt offerings at the entrance of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 29 and verse 12, put some of its blood on the horns of the altar with your finger and pour out the rest at the base of the altar. Paul would use this imagery in the New Testament two times. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6. As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. He's saying, I, my life is going to be, my blood is going to be shed like blood poured at the altar of sacrifice. It's Philippians 2, 17. If I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. But look at what he says. He says, I'll rejoice in living my life. In giving my life. <clears throat> you don't sacrifice something unless you're getting something better in exchange. Our military, our soldiers, our airmen, our sailors, our SEALs, our Marines, our Coast Guard, our National Guard, they willingly give their lives because they believe that the idea of America is greater than their life. A mother sacrifices her life for her children because she believes her child's life is greater. Christ gave his life for you because you were of infinite value to God. And we willingly give our lives for the word of God and our testimony because God is greater than any breath of life we can breathe upon this earth. It's the only way to understand thy loving kindness is better than life. It's the only way to understand it. It's not just a happy little charismatic song that we sing. The martyrs gave up their lives for the word of God and their faithful testimony. Martyrdom was... If you'll think of it like this, the New Testament folks saw it as, as a bridge. And not a literal bridge, but let me use that as an analogy, but as a bridge. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, Stephen looked up and he saw the glory, the word is Shekinah. He saw the glory of God and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Remember what he said? He said, and I see him standing. The Bible tells us he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus stood up to welcome Stephen into paradise. 
The martyrs had something that, like Paul, caused them to rejoice. That's the reason the early Christians are recorded that they sang as they were led to their deaths to be mauled and tore apart by animals. They sang when they were put upon post and covered in pitch and set afire so that Nero began to sew their lips together and cut their tongues out so they couldn't sing and praise God. They counted it a joy because they knew what lay on the other side of death. Their prayer is not a prayer for vengeance, it's a prayer for vindication. It's not a prayer for vengeance, it's a prayer for vindication. To understand this, you have to understand the background of Jewish jurisprudence. Because in the Bible, the plaintiff had to plead his or her case before the judge. They say, God, you are holy and true. You are not like this world. This has been the cry of martyrs and people that have suffered Christ throughout all the centuries of hostility to God. They're pleading, Lord, vindicate, show the world that we lived for you. We were faithful to you. Because in the eyes of the world, people who die for Christ are fools or losers. But if they understood why people die for Christ... When I sat with people, men, who'd watched their families executed and were in prison rather than deny Christ, I turned down my opportunity to go and preach in some of these countries because we have countries in the Assemblies of God where you can't be ordained unless you've been in prison for preaching the gospel because they don't know who is a traitor. That's today. They don't know who's searching out their ranks. I didn't have anything to say to them. I just wanted to sit and learn from them. Don't ever take our freedom in America for granted because there are people today trying to take it away from you. The white robes represent the righteousness of God and Christ given to the martyrs. Remember, you know, leave that up and I'll just read the verse and we'll skip to the next point. Remember what he said to the church at Laodicea, buy white garments from me. It represents the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Not my righteousness, not your righteousness, but righteousness is given to us through Christ, okay? That's the point that's given here. It's not something you've earned. They are not under the altar because they were necessarily good people. They are not under the altar because they were necessarily virtuous. It's not about their goodness and their virtue. It's about what Christ has done for us. That's the reason a thief could be with Jesus in paradise on the very same day he died. Faith in God makes a difference. Amen? Amen. The sixth seal is the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. The sixth seal is the judgment of God upon the unbelieving world. What's going to happen here, and if you need to leave, it's 8.02. If you need to leave, you won't offend me if you leave, but... um, I'm going to finish this so I can preach next week's message. You're going to read about, a se- we're going to read up here again in just a moment about a series of cosmic events that just, every time I read it to this day, and I don't know how many times I've read this book, it blows my mind. And if you read it slowly and carefully, it'll blow your mind too. But what's going to happen is you're going to see that this unbelieving world suddenly is going to recognize there's a God in heaven. This unbelieving world is going to recognize that God has released a series of cosmic events that are so 
unproportional to anything that's ever happened in history. As you read this, keep in mind sci-fi movies that you've watched. Was it Armageddon where they sent a spaceship up that was going to try and blow up an asteroid that was coming to destroy the planet Earth? You know, you read these movies, or was it Oblivion where, or something like that where they send a spaceship into space and they find this God that is sleeping, they're going to destroy this God that's going to destroy their... When you read, you see in human beings the image of God being created in them. You see the hatred of some human beings because if we can find this malevolent God and destroy Him, then we'll be okay. It's the same thing Mark said. If we can destroy the concept of God, if we can destroy who God is in the minds of people, we'll set people free. Everybody will be equal. But you're going to see all of a sudden this unbelieving world that has chosen to give in to a deception, you're going to suddenly recognize that there is a God. But I want you to look at how they react because the reaction is very telling. I watched as the lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. Now, let me stop there for just a moment. I'm going to stop a little bit through as I read this. If you remember when we had Dr. Grady McMurtry here, we've had him twice, and he taught on uh, the creation of the earth, and he shows you that great fault line that runs right around the globe that where, the, where the, the, the depths opened up and the separation of the continents took place. And you can just trace that fault line around the earth. We're not talking about a, Cali- a California-style earthquake where part of California is going to drop off in the ocean and suddenly Nevada is going to be beachfront property. We're talking about an earthquake like the world has never known before, okay? It's going to be much different than that movie Earthquake where Mr. Muscles is flying a helicopter all over the place rescuing people off the top of buildings. What's his name? I'm surprised you knew that. <laughs> I knew you would know that. Anyway, it's going to be different. It's going to be a cataclysmic earthquake. The sun will become as dark as black cloth. We're not talking about an eclipse here. Because an eclipse, as you know, not everybody in the world sees an eclipse. It happens at different places and they're really localized. We had a family from the church that chased an eclipse all the way out west to get to see the best part of it. And uh, Pastor Rick, Weren't we together for an eclipse? And, you know, everybody left you and I eating our hamburgers and went outside. Mark, you were there. You went outside to look at the eclipse. And hamburgers and french fries was better to Rick and I. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now stop and think about that. Our sun is a medium-sized star. And yet it would just dwarf the earth. And the closest star, outside of our sun, the closest star, if I remember correctly, and Paul, you correct me if I'm not, because you're the source and reservoir of all trivial knowledge. The closest star to our planet is four and a half light years away. That means that it would have to travel at the speed of four and a half light years to reach our planet in four four and a half years. Besides that, you know, the planet just couldn't take it. So what you're seeing is something so cosmic here, the heavens are collapsing. Matter of fact, they fall like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. I was in Washington State speaking, and I went out for a, a, 
one of the largest meteor showers that I ever got to see and just all night long, just star after star, multiple stars falling together. And I remember as I lay stretched out on a chair looking up at those stars in the high desert just thinking about this passage of Scripture. The sky was rolled up like a scroll. In other words, let me take my Bible here. You know the scroll is typically open from one end, but what he was saying is like the book, sorry. I am so sorry. I should have warned you what I was going to do. You okay? Okay. I'm going to do it again. It's like time is over. Time's up. The book is being shut. That's what you're seeing here. The sky was rolled up like a scroll and all the mountains and the islands were <laughs> from their places. I can't look at you. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers. Now, there's seven groups here. The kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave and free person all hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountain. And they cried out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to survive? You're seeing the total breakdown of the natural scientific order. That's what you're seeing. There has not been a science fiction movie made like this. You're seeing the total breakdown, total chaos. What does the Bible say the earth was before God created? Chaos. Okay? The falling of the stars means the end has come. The shutting of the scroll means the end has come. Isaiah 34 verse 4 prophesies of the time. The heavens will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine or shriveled figs from a fig tree. But what troubles me here, and I, I want you to see this, what troubles me here is though the people recognize it, their response is not repentance, it's terror. They still refuse to repent. They're terrified, but they refuse to repent. I know people like that. They're terrified at what's happening in our world today. They're terrified to go to Europe. I got a call yesterday. Somebody asked me about a trip that I'm going to be making. He says, are you going to still go? With all? And I go, yes, I'm going. He says, I, I just, I don't think it's wise. I says, I have to go. They're terrified. Friends, we walk. We don't do foolish things just for the sake of doing foolish things, but we walk with our hands in the hand of the Lord. And what you're seeing here is a world that even when they know that what God is doing, they say it's better to die than to face God. It's better just to, to be annihilated than to face God because they don't want to believe that there is an eternity to suffer through. It's why people so willingly commit suicide today, not knowing that people in their sinful, and I'm not talking about people who are mentally ill, but people who in their sinful condition put a gun in their mouth or take pills or ask a doctor to kill them that do not realize that the suffering they may be experiencing now is so much worse than when the powers of hell begin to assault them and they suffer in eternity without Christ. We have to take this seriously. It's the blindness of sin 
And again, I have to take you back to Genesis because to understand Revelation, you have to understand Genesis. Because when Adam and Eve sin, rather than repent and ask God to have mercy, their first response was to hide from the voice of God. And then to try to cover their sins up. <coughs> All the security of these seven groups of people is shattered. So it's not the rich that have the olive oil and wine. It's the mercy of God, but all of their security is shattered. And now here is the startling phrase, and I'm kind of rushing through all this, and I apologize for being so long. But who can survive the wrath of a lamb? Now let that phrase, the wrath of a lamb? The lamb is the most docile creature I know. Mary had an angry lamb, angry lamb, angry lamb. Mary had an angry lamb with fangs as white as snow. <laughs> no, you don't think that way. The wrath of the lamb. Lambs don't get angry. They're meek, they're mild, they're playful, they're cut, they'll follow you. What you're seeing here is the messianic aspect of Christ. He was the lamb that was slain. We saw that in the throne room scene. But now, this cross is what stands between us and the wrath of God being poured out upon this world. Okay, you can, you can stop it right there for me, Mark. Bring the lights back up. We live in a time where people want us to compromise our faith to accommodate what the world believes. And the fact that I believe that Jesus Christ is the way to God and the only way to God doesn't make me a bigot or make anybody else a bigot. I have many friends who disagree with me. I'm having lunch with one in just a few days of another religion. We build relationships and other people are contacting me and saying, you know, I know he wants me to become a Christian, but he is my friend. It doesn't mean that you don't love people when you disagree with him. As a matter of fact, I believe that he really loves me and counts me as one of his true friends. A business associate contacted him the other day, and when he told him that he knew me, they had an instant meeting together and joining of minds. We cannot, we must not allow the activists of our world at work in America today to rob us of our historic freedom that Christianity has given us that informed the founding fathers of our country that if you don't believe in God, you're not going to be punished. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going to be punished. You're free to worship or not worship as you choose because God never forces anybody to give their heart to Jesus. God loves people, all people, but the only way to heaven is through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's how you understand the wrath of the Lamb, because the wrath of God has been revealed and is being revealed against all sin. If you want to understand the wrath of God, Go back and reread the passion of our Lord and Savior and see what was poured out upon Christ so that you and I could be saved from our sins. And I hope, I hope 
understanding this symbolism and this phrase, the wrath of the Lamb, will help you for the real message that I want to bring to you from Revelation 6 next week. I hope you've understood this. I enjoyed this. I am so sorry. I'm 20 minutes past 8 o'clock. But forgive me and come back next week, okay? Let's stand together and we'll pray. Amen. Jesus, I love you with all my heart and all my soul. And Lord, I don't think there's a person here that's more grateful for the cross of Christ than what I am. I pray that we'll never be shaken by the tweets of respected leaders like Mitt Romney, who just a few years ago ran for the President of the United States. I pray that we'll never, Lord, be shaken by those who, Lord, are offended because we believe what we do. But you will remind us, God, what an honor and what a privilege it is. Lord, what joy it is to remain faithful to the Word of God and to our testimony of who you are. And finally, Lord, remind us tonight as we go home that all these cosmic powers, these powers and principalities, they belong to you. They're under your control. And Lord, just like the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen protected, we're going to see how you're going to put your seal of protection upon your people. If you can protect the olive oil and the vineyards, then Lord, you can protect us. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed tonight.